off the ball. Anthony, Anthony and Anthony. That would be the front three for Manchester United. Martial, Alanga and Anthony. I've laughed or socked off. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. And you're welcome to the Sunday paper review and off the ball. John Duggan with you this afternoon. Sitting in for Joe Malloy. We're joined by the Irish Examiner sports writer Brendan O'Brien and the CEO of Tenio Ireland and the former Dublin senior footballer Michael Keefe to review the stories of the day. We will start the programme by expressing our deepest condolences to the family of Jack de Bromhead. So 13-year-old Jack died in a tragic riding accident at the Glen Bay races on Ross Bay Beach in County Kerry yesterday. He survived by his father, the trainer Henry de Bromhead, his mother Heather, his sisters Mia and Georgia. It's heartbreaking. Uh, the De Bromhead family from Waterford, they're well known in racing circles. Obviously, Henry, a Gold Cup and Grand National winning trainer. Jack was a talented young jockey. He rode a winner only last week at Carzervine uh, in the pony races and may he rest in peace. Uh, I think the whole of the racing community, the sporting community in Ireland is in mourning today at this tragedy and it's just devastating, Mick, and no words, really. No words for this. No, and look, it just puts it all in perspective, really. Um, here's a young boy, 13 years of age, starting out his life, doing something that he loves and just such a tragic, tragic accident. And look, we've all lost people in, in our lives and I think all you can do is have huge amount of sympathy. All our thoughts are with the De Bromhead family. Um, God only knows what they're going through today. Like, it's really, really sad. Um, and hopefully they can find some strength in the next couple of weeks now to help them get through this because no success, no amount of... Um, anything can, can can prepare you for something like this so just hopefully they, they get through the next few weeks Yeah well said Mick uh, like uh, I think my heart breaks for them absolutely breaks and I just think there are no words it's just thoughts and emotions and sorrow and just I think they're in everybody's thoughts the, the Bromhead family today so Okay, uh, let's begin uh, the paper review uh, to go through the, the papers today uh, We have the Sunday Independent Sport so Conte's Contenders Hoybier on the mark as Tottenham signalled their intent and Ten Hag vows to teach Ronaldo new lessons ahead of Manchester United and uh, Arsenal. That is uh, later on today on Off the Ball. Jay's dark day, uh, Colm O'Rourke and Joe Brawley on outcry over attack and referee must spark sea change. We have the Sunday Times. Hammer blow, Moyes fuming after VAR denies late equaliser at Chelsea. West Ham boss says Mendy faked injury. Paul McGinley Poulter and I are on our different sides now and it's really sad. Wayne Rooney's exclusive column. You can see the rivalry with Arsenal in Fergie's face. Here it in his team talks. We also have the Daily Mail, Irish Daily Mail. Varsicle. So Moyes and Rice Lamb, worst ever day for refs. Uh, Megan Campbell, we still have to give everything to reach the World Cup. Gerard so proud after Villa made their point. The Glazers treat United like a cash machine. They must go, says Gary Neville. Extracts from his book. We also have the star. Very, very dangerous. And Ron step back. Boss Eric laying down the law. And Haaland goal train still going. So 10 goals now in six games for Erling Haaland in the Premier League. Back of the sun. Interesting little column here. Man United. Lewis Hamilton ready to back takeover bid with Jim Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe is worth around 15 billion has been linked with buying the club as fans fume at the Glazers' ownership. Now we'll get Real and Euro glory vow after rout. Ireland seed off hope. Uh, this is the great 
use that Ireland if they beat Slovakia in the Women's World Cup qualifier on Tuesday will be one of those top three seeds for the playoffs for the World Cup Lampard sees red about that challenge from Van Dijk on uh, Adamu Anana yesterday in the Merseyside derby we have the back of the mirror Everton nil Liverpool nil red mist Lamps Fury at Van Dijk let off uh, Anthony and Agent War people arguing about money pretty depressing uh, Sells thump Jairs for four back of the Sunday world Anto puts Chris in crisis. So Cristiano Ronaldo slips down the pecking orders. Ten Hag is ready to unleash new Brazilian star. Uh, John Aldridge and Mo show from Salah. Uh, Paul McGrath, brave Eric has found red spark. And Vera's Green Army are cup for it. And also City's Hal and Hell. Erling continues scoring next boys, but Villa stunned Pep's men. A lot of Premier League reaction. And the Observer is always worth a read as well on a Sunday. So, end of an era. Serena departed with grit, passion, fighting in the heat of the battle with everything she had obviously knocked out of the US Open she says she's evolving but she's retired folks Serena Williams so Brendan where do we want to start I think there are probably two big stories this week there's the referee assault in Roscommon and the fallout of that and whether things will actually change and then there's the women's team and their journey hopefully to World Cup in Australia and New Zealand next year Yeah I think the referees certainly gets more of the coverage um, this week like you say after the midweek incident in, uh, in Roscommon and Interesting to look at it. I mean, in one way, you have to say what more can be said. It's not a new story. It's something we've seen before, unfortunately. Uh, I think in one of the papers, there's a list of, I think it's Derm- beside Dermot Crow's piece, yeah. there's a list of five infamous GA refereeing controversies <coughs> from Johnny Price, Wicklow, 1985, the ref in the boot case, and then it goes down to Martin Sludden, Tyrone, at the, the Leinster Senior Football Final between Louth and Meath, and that's one I was actually at, and it's one of, it, it, it brought it back to me very vividly when I just see the mention of it and the picture of it, referee Martin Sludden being chased off Croke Park in 2010. If you go back to then, the amount of column inches and the amount of airspace that was given to what- It was a live line topic. It was, yeah, yeah. I mean, and that, that's the- It's a bigger story that Monday than the World Cup final, which was that evening between yeah. Spain and the I mean, Netherlands. That's 12 years ago and there was a lot of hand-wringing at the time, what do we do, where does the blame lie? Is it a top-down, is it a bottom-up problem? Mm. Um, should referees go and strike? Everything was debated, and like you say, it was live line, you know, that's kind of the cultural zeitgeist. So 12 years on, we've another issue, and I'm sure if you were to look at the papers now to back then, would, would we be seeing much different in it? And it's interesting, even Shane McGrath has a piece in the Daily Mail, Dermot Crow, Colm O'Rourke, Joe Brawley yeah. in the Sindo, uh, Mick Foley in, in the Sunday Times. And where where do you go? I mean, you know, do you just throw a lot of mud at the wall and hope something sticks and it changes? Because just even just to pick out one aspect of it, um, Shane talks about, you know, a well-informed lawyer or vigilant administrator will exploit sloppiness and procedural rule, get people off or whatever. And uh, troubling as that recurrent weakness is, though, it's not at the root of the GA's refereeing crisis attitudes are and that begs the question where does culture come from where does attitude come from and if stuff is leakable at the top if we're seeing these issues in terms of players and administrators and everybody else getting off the top that's a cultural issue and it does feed its way down we see it in politics we see it in economics with recessions and everything else so I would argue that it is incumbent very much so on the GEA at the top level to absolutely, they will, the GA will say that they have rules and regulations for this kind of thing. But as we've seen here, there's too much gets through and that whole culture needs to stop and that does start at the top. And then you work your way down, there's a hundred other questions you can ask. 
Yeah, John, I, I look, all there's about seven or eight articles in what we've read already this morning and they all talk about it's a disgrace and cowardly and tuckery and, you know, hopefully this serves to ignite change. But like, we've read this for 15, 20 years. Okay, 99% of GA matches that happen this weekend, next weekend, will go off without incident, but there's still too many. There's still too many incidents and it is a cultural issue that now exists within GA and soccer. Um, not rugby, um, in, interestingly, but soccer and GA from under 10s up to junior soccer, junior football, junior hurling. There's a lack of respect um, and it comes from a load of different things. I, I, I think we need to educate kids and we need to educate mentors from day one on the importance of refereeing and the importance <coughs> of, of refs and respect. And there's also an issue, I think, here at the top where <clears throat> there's a greyness in the rules and a greyness around GA, right? And That's mentioned in a couple of the pieces, the actual yeah. playing rules, you mean? And there's a greyness in the yeah. rules and then there's a greyness in the application of the rules yeah. and then there's also a greyness in the enforcement of the rules. There's a greyness in the challenges as well. The challenges in the rule book and the technicalities you're getting off and that culture as well. 100%. And again, if you have a, a, a system where, you know, four guys get, get done, you know, for a melee and then on the Tuesday you have a technicality and a fella gets off the hook, like, you're already undermining yeah. the officials by doing that um, and there is a fear of intimidation from referees and like you know I had a working with an under 9 GA team yesterday and there was 15 year olds refing and you're trying to educate the kids about going up and thanking the ref and all that kind of stuff but like you'd honestly take a step back and go who in their right mind mm. for 40 quid would go out and referee a junior football match or a minor match the, t- tomorrow because there is that fear of intimidation and it has to be stamped out and we're going to be talking about this in five or six years time unless they get a hold of this issue and one case is just one case too many at this point and Shane has alluded to a strike I think he calls for yeah. will this wake people up um, but I think this is a four or five year journey we need to go on starting with education for the kids and the mentors really kind of significant disciplinary action and enforcement as well and to give the referees the authority and referees will get things wrong and it's, there's VAR and soccer and all that stuff that goes on but like until such time as we get to that we're going to be back here and there'll be some fella and there was this kind of you know ha ha kind of macho man stuff about the fella in, in Wicklow getting put in the boot and mm. there's this kind of culture of kind of you know disrespect and machoism that goes with, with disrespect for referees but to be honest with you at this stage we'll have no game if we don't have referees and they need to stamp it out well, It's interesting you talk about rugby there because <coughs> Joe Brawley in his column yeah. in the Sunday Independent says my son Turlock uh, if I cor- pronounce that correctly was a keen rugby player he started playing uh, at Malone when he was 11 and he was shocked to find he was spending most of the season on the sideline having questioned a decision his teammates were upset with him for mousing his rugby coach has made it clear that it was totally unacceptable and if it continued they would be forced to send him home for good he quickly learned not to open his mouth not because he didn't want to but because rugby's zero tolerance culture doesn't permit it soon it was second nature for him mm. oh, absolutely and, and look um, that's that's true and it's not it's not Ireland this issue this is the same in England you know um, Wales anywhere the difference between rugby and, and other sports you know and, and the kids see it on the telly like the kids take it all in and they watch a Premier League match and they see David Moyes or they see someone else mm. pontificating, squaring up to referees, squaring up to officials. They see players arguing every single decision with a referee. That's crept into to GA, that culture. And GA, you've a, a secondary kind of un- undertone as well. But in rugby, they're just it just doesn't happen. And yeah. I wonder, is it because, you know, when the kids start, the dads are involved and the mums and they're on the pitch. Um, it's a technical game, but you don't see players. OK, the automatic captain is allowed to go up and mm. talk to a referee. But you don't see a player 
going up and squaring up to a referee it's, it's, in rugby it, at any level. It, it's interesting as well because we, you touched on it as well, Mick, about and it's in Shane's piece in the, in the mail where he says football and hurling regulations are in practice played through great swaths of grey, a liminal space where law and disorder mix and meld. And on the cultural side of it, and when we're talking about rugby, I mean, rugby is the most queried yeah. game in terms of laws and regulations. We see it on social media, in the paper, on, on the airwaves. Every time there's a game, every game of rugby that you watch that means anything, you will have people absolutely laying into referees off the pitch. And yet on the pitch, it's all very, you know, the old gentlemanly kind of ethos that's in there. So in a way, that kind of takes away one of the excuses if you want to use an excuse yeah. for GA. Then we say, ah, you know, there's, is that a black card? Is that a tackle? Should the tackle rule isn't defined? And, you know, that's what gets people annoyed about it. People get annoyed about every sport. Yeah. You will always yeah. have that tribal issue in it. So that takes away that kind of aspect on it. And it was interesting as well, there was um, a very good piece in, in the Irish Times yesterday with Gordon Manning and um, yeah. Larry McCarthy, the GA president, who's obviously our first overseas-based president. And, and in it, McCarthy admitted that had he his time back, he's 18 months halfway through his term, he would like to go back and maybe have more of a focus on the referees issue. Um, that, that's one thing if he had his time back. So look, hopefully in the next 18 months and hopefully the next guy is coming through because in the GA it's so unusual that you've the, the, the president and the, C, the effective CEO, you have two kind of heads of organisation that are very much equal in, in terms of a lot of ways. So hopefully the next person coming in is, is looking at this and they're putting well they have the to because it's going to be like as Joe Brody said in the Sun Independent like the Catholic priest that there won't be enough yeah. referees to go around but you look, oh. at, look at the piece in, in, um, the, about the Roscommon uh, stat one of the stat, stats that Dermot Crow has he says five years ago one of the referees he spoke to drew attention to a crisis in the recruitment of referees in Roscommon with half of them over the age of 50 so like we were saying, go back to Martin Sludden go back to Johnny Price in, uh, and, and the Wicklow incident in 85 this has been with us all our yeah. adult lives yeah. and nothing's been There's fixed. a disease though of short memories. Yeah. Uh, and and also there is, there is a cultural... The GA fans are the best in the world. I think GA supporters are amazing. You go to Coke Park, we all mingle together, we go and we have a drink or a cup of tea afterwards and, and commiserate and celebrate. But there is a culture in GA and it's not just based on referee abuse of... Um, Agro, especially in Gaelic football, especially at club level, I would opine, that is just baked in the cake. And that's got to be overturned or, or changed or in some way. And I, I, I suppose what I'm kind of trying to get at here, what are the solutions around this? How can we get solutions that are not uh, going to have us sitting around here in two years' time after another referee like has been assaulted and something serious could happen? I mean, that gentleman's brought to hospital. Yeah. You know, it's pretty grim. But there's 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 hard men and a and a machoism in 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 most field sports. Like there's a strong machoism in in rugby. And the harder to hit, the bigger to hit. The you know, and people get the, it raises the crowd. In hurling, people like a hard man. Soccer, there's centre backs that would take your head off, right? And it's the same. It's a and and the greyness of the application. I I don't think is an excuse either. Like we had the incident when Ireland played New Zealand um, in the second test where. The, it was, the player was really late on Mac Hansen. Do you remember that? Yeah. Uh, and kind of like, you don't see the Irish manager or yeah. somebody squaring up to the referees is coming off the pitch. There's a reason why there, there are policemen at National League, Alliance Leagues matches is because one of their briefs is to make sure that if the referee's in trouble, they can walk with a referee off the mm. pitch. Like, that's... So what's the solution? The solution is it's, 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 it's going to take time I think it's cultural. I think it's educational for mentors. I think it's zero tolerance. You've got to get with Rudy Giuliani, New York, zero yeah. tolerance. Um, and this thing of, 
of being able to, you know, um, challenge and undermine referees post game, <clears throat> I don't think we should be in that position at all. So no. for me, it's a, sorry, Brad. For me, it's 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 a it's going to take time. Yeah, um, I, I think it's a two pronged approach. But it starts. I mean, what's low hanging fruit of it? The zero tolerance. Like the cultural changes absolutely has to happen. Education, all that, absolutely crucial. But I would go further, Mick. I'd say that's a generational thing. I think in 15 years' time, yeah. 20 years' time, if you start doing that properly now, you'll still be trying to get there. It's not a four or five-year fix, in my opinion. But, and, but, yeah. but, but the, the penal side of it, I think, is the low-hanging fruit. That's where you can make changes now, and that's the point that, that Broly's making. Like He's making all sorts of suggestions. He says at one point... Um, if a player criticises a decision or remonstrates to the referee, he receives an immediate red card and a minimum eight-week ban. Now, in practice, I don't know how that's going to work, but I see his point. Like, there are things you can do where this has to be rooted out immediately. And you're go- if, if something like that came in, you'd have a situation where teams would be <coughs> finishing with 12 men. Fine, is that what you put up with? It's the same with rugby, with concussion and, and high hits. Well, look, at what stage do we say, oh, this is ruining the game, yeah. like they have in the Southern Hemisphere, but what's the big picture? You want to make it safer for players and for referees, and if the entertainment value and the spectacle takes a hit, that has to be done. And, and the application needs to go from, you, you know, you have this always thing around, well, will I be able to apl- uh, apply this in a yeah. junior C football match yeah. or hurling match? Um, I think it has to be zero tolerance. We see, I guarantee today, 10 players will touch a referee today. Mm. There'll be a hand on the shoulder, they'll mm. be up in his face. In, in, in the Premier League games today you, you're beginning to see that in GA players touching referees yeah. encroaching on their space I would have a, a zero tolerance of you talk back to a referee as a manager or a player it's a minimum of a yellow card mm. sanction you touch a referee off yeah. gone and it, it, within within a year you'll have all the grumbling and we'll do the typical thing of oh well we've gone too far you got it we have mm. to do it at this stage going back again okay there are <clears throat> you know a lot of stuff happens and there's, there is a great culture in most clubs in the GA where they don't they'll actually self-sanction people who are poor on the line and I've seen it in clubs where somebody gets a reputation for being a bit noisy on the line and the club will actually have a word with them which mm. is the right thing to do yeah. but I think the Michael Foley's thing just from my side just to finish is you know sometimes there's certain things there's no words left not because there's nothing to say but because all the pontificating and moral condemnation has already been done at different times in different ways ending with the same outcome if we have the same outcome here and we're talking about this in two years time mm. well then I, I, I think you know yeah. it's, a, it's a massive step backwards Yeah, just uh, some <clears throat> Dermot Krogh uh, parts of his article uh, the ink barely dry in a recent academic paper showing that almost a quarter of GA referees had experienced physical assaults Nocton this is Kevin Nocton the referee in in, in in the incident, uh, ended up unconscious in hospital, left on the field for about 45 minutes before an ambulance arrived in Ballinasloe. Also in his column, a study by members of the University of Ulster and Coleraine revealed 23% of GA match officials surveyed had suffered physical abuse. 94% had experienced verbal abuse. A total of 438 match officials were surveyed with an even geographical spread of respondents from across all four provinces. Just under 10% said verbal abuse was a factor in all games they officiated in. Over 30% said it was an occurrence in every second game. Almost half said such abuse made them consider quitting. They said it had impacted on their mental health and well-being. They cited managers and coaches as the main culprits, 85% laying the blame at their door. Also in Michael Foley's column in the Sunday Times, last year the intercounty referee James Owens reckoned the number of referees in Wexford alone had dropped from 80 to 50 in three years, nearly 40%. This is like, this is a crisis. And it has taken this incident to highlight that as a crisis. Absolutely. And like you say, just on that last stat, the... 
the one here as well about a report from the Oireachtas Committee in Sport in June showed that 66% of newly trained FAI referees had quit within two years, abuse being the main cause. These are unbelievable. and They're not sustainable figures. They're just not. So give respect, get respect. That's not doing enough, is it? No, it's not. Not enough, no. No, no. more than that. PR campaigns, but look, that is part of the education. I mean, we can be, we can be. But kind uh, of is it wider? Is, is there, like when you're looking at Armagh Tyrone earlier this year and Armagh Galway, and I, I even want to take the eye gouge thing out of that yeah. and everything. Else. But even like, forget about the eye gouge. But just the whole milieu, the shamazel, this kind of ah, sure, it's grand, it's baked, you mm. know, it's, it's fine. Is that contributing to this culture as well? Yeah, it yeah. is, and 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 lack of sanctions contributes too. I, again, I, I want to be fair in this. Like you know, most clubs up and down the country set out their stall early to have ultimate respect for each other, ultimate respect for coaches, mentors, and ultimate respect for referees. There, there, there is a lot of clubs that, that set out their stall and you sit down with, with groups of mentors and they're starting out their journey at eight and nine uh, and, and ten. Um, and I, I, I do think there is that. But there, there's just this minority and there is this ethos and there is this culture um, and we don't want to take the physicality out of the game. Yes, there's greyness in some of the interpretation of the rules. But we can't have a shrug your shoulder thing when a, a guy allegedly or not walks onto a pitch 30 seconds into a second half match, mm. allegedly headbutts a referee and walks straight off. With young lads. With young lads and, and, and then, they're, then they're crying. But that, that's, it's bananas. Like it's actually, like it's disgusting. And there's all these WhatsApps doing around and you're all probably getting the same things and the videos. And But some of the commentary around it from people who were allegedly there or saw it on, about people involved, like, you know, they're guys and particularly men who who have kind of built this hard man reputation about you know been the head case around the place and you know like but that's this whoever did that should go to jail to be quite frank that's an assault um, and whoever did that should be sanctioned forget about a lifetime ban well, we, we, we don't know exactly what happened no we don't no, we so don't and I want to be careful yeah, on that yeah, because, yeah, yeah, because, I, because the video cuts out at a certain point yeah we point. don't know exactly what but happened if somebody if, if somebody if somebody if somebody went on and, and if someone assaulted a referee yeah, like it could have been a push and he could have fallen and absolutely it could have been, you know, so. but if, if if that happened it's it's a matter for I suppose what we're saying is maybe Mick that if it happened on the street and if there was assault on the street yeah. that would be handled in a, in a way that everybody would expect it to be handled and that's it's the same yeah the Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Irish women's team, um, it was amazing on, on Thursday that we got the result against Finland. And the thing about it is now is that the seedings have worked in our way, that if we beat Slovakia on Tuesday, we will be in that, uh, I suppose, top tier playoff position for the World Cup finals in Australia and New Zealand next year I'm disappointed I have to say we congratulate people for their sports writing here every week uh, on the paper review um, I'm looking through the Sunday Independent and the Sunday Times I'm seeing one article from David Kelly uh, in the Sunday Independent one article from Paul Rowan in the Sunday Times uh, for the first time in our history we could have a women's team qualifying for a World Cup finals I think it deserves more coverage than that I think it's bigger than that I see three articles from the referees perspective and all that kind of thing in the Sunday Independent and I'm kind of going surely this deserved we had from Thursday until today more coverage since received I actually think the Mail have been best on this Mark Gallagher has written a really really good piece in the Mail and there's also I think the back page as well Campbell we still have to give everything to reach the World Cup so um we could see by the TV coverage, we could see by the reaction of the players that this is now becoming something that is building momentum, building ahead of steam. 
and hopefully we can get the job done and qualify. I don't know what you guys think in terms of the coverage of it. Is there enough? Should there be more? But this, to me, is the biggest story of the week. Now, the referees is, is more a societal story, yeah, but this the is the biggest, biggest sporting yeah, story of the week. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I think it's 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 a fair observation to make, a fair opinion to have. Um, myself and Mick were talking outside about the, the strange nature of this August September mm. period as well. Given that the All Irelands have been brought back, the rugby really isn't kicking off for another couple of weeks with the URC, uh, and in terms of big big rugby games, it'll be November really before we're into them. So. There certainly is a gap there. We saw it filled for a little bit with the European Championships in Munich and stuff like that. So, mm. yeah, look, there could there could be a little bit more. Um, I don't know the, the ins and outs of uh, staffing levels or, or editorial opinions in them, but um, it's certainly a fantastic story. Um, you have to. But make the, the stories in all these players, the stories in every single one of those players, and they're now becoming mm. identifiable to the public. Katie McCabe, yeah. I think most people would know who she is now. Mm. Um, they all have their stories. Lily Ag, even the goal scorer the other night, came on, got a Cork grandmother. Yeah, uh, is is not young, came into the team, and we obviously not all know the very Paz recent story. But these are ambassadors. The, 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 I suppose the, the whole thing I took out of the other night, whether we qualify for the World Cup or not, is the potential of it. Yeah, I I, I agree with you, John. I I, I think. This is this is huge, and I think it's huge for women's sport. Um, I think it's great for Irish football um, as well, and. You know, I, I I think there was a good bit of coverage during the week around it. There was definitely a buzz around yeah. the, the fact that this was a big game, um, big crowd, albeit disaster, M50, 7 o'clock, the first day the kids are back at school to get across. And you could just see there was a few season tickle or something just didn't make it to the game, um, which was, considering it was a full house, I thought that was an interesting thing as well. But um, this is a team I think that the Irish public identifies with. I think they've grown up with this team over the last number of years and the ups and downs. There's great personalities in that squad. Um, and, you know, in, in a way, as you said, it doesn't really matter. I think it'd be amazing if they if they qualified for a tournament because, you know, you can't see it. If you can't see it, you can't be it. And I thought Lisa Fallon, she was on radio during the week, I think. Um, maybe she was on one of the early, early morning shows and she was brilliant. And she spoke about how the journey that's gone from, you know, the tracksuit gate that we all know about where the girls didn't have Liberty yeah, Hall and all that, yeah. And, you know, you look at the, the absolute disdain and, and disrespect that was shown by the previous administration of the FAI towards women's soccer. Like, the potential of women's soccer in this country is enormous. It is a sleeping giant. The amount of girls now playing football. And even if this team qualifies for a championship and, you know, that might be the level of the achievement, which is an amazing achievement, what that does for the girls playing on the under 14s and 15s and 16s to be able to see that there's a beautiful picture in the in um up on one of the info or sports file sites of the Ireland under 15 girls team and they're all around Vera Powell I don't even think she knows who they are but they all went as a, as a team together they're all in there cheering on their team the girls did a lap of honour like I think it's a brilliant story and I think um, it's something that we should be embracing. I, I think the coverage has been okay this week. Um, there was obviously a bit of a spike spike during the week um, but I think it'll ramp up now again for the next game. If they win that, I think, John, I think they're seeded for the draw. Yeah, that's um, right, yeah. yeah. Which makes a big difference again. Um, I wouldn't it be brilliant if they qualified um, just to give everyone that opportunity to get behind the team. Well, imagine we all getting up early in the morning to watch them in Australia and New Zealand mm, next year. Yeah. That would be pretty cool. There is also the point that, as Vera Powell would say herself, they haven't qualified yet. No, that I mean, no. I mean that that was you can't get carried away. No, yeah. but but the point I'm making is that in a, in a lot of ways, if you boil it down, that game against Finland on Thursday was massive for the squad internally. That a lot of people, probably floating voters, don't really get. Do you know what I mean? If you're not following it completely, it's I think it's back in 2020 when they lost that game to Ukraine in Kiev. 
And that was the big thing about this game. Yes, it gets them a, a, um, a playoff place for the World Cup, but that really lanced the boil of, of Kiev. I mean, when you think back to that game, the, the ridiculous nature of the own goal, they conceded, mm. the unfortunate nature of it, Katie McCabe missing a penalty, and then for Ukraine to go out and you lose the playoff to Northern Ireland, who the Republic would have beaten, to miss out on the Euros in England and everything that unfolded there. And there's been a lot of the players talking about the, the spillover effect of the Euros in England and what that's done, and it's, it's built up the game in Ireland. But I would argue that we have not yet had that moment yet, that when it does happen that they qualify, and you, you quite rightly say it. You haven't had our Gary Mackay moment. We haven't. Oh. And that, some, somebody mentioned that during the week. Yeah. It was a line in the paper, or maybe, maybe it was one of you guys in Off the Ball, but that line was mentioned during the week. We're still waiting on that. Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's okay. It, it kind of, they didn't play well for long periods of the yeah. night. And actually, you look back to the Gary Mackay thing, you was only thinking about it during the week as well, as like, you have to fall over the line sometimes for that yeah. big moment. I'd I, I look at this um, success and momentum, and there's an inevitable momentum around the women's soccer team, which is great. Two things. One is it kind of, is another part of that story of the Katie Taylor, Leona Maguire, Rachel Blackmore, the GA. Mead footballers. Mead footballers, everything. Ellen Keane. Ellen Keane, like, Kira McGeehan like there's this huge momentum around women's sport in Ireland which is amazing where's that going to go eventually I don't know are we going to end up in a pay equality scenario in the next well, that's generation the, the really, that, that is an interesting thing I remember when Europe first won the Ryder Cup it was in uh, 85 yeah. but in 83 Tony Jacklin said we're going on Concord to America and it gave psychologically Europe a feeling that they were equals. And that with Seamus Coleman and, and with the Irish, yep. uh, the FA. Symbolically, I think that would have given the women's team a huge psychological boost no, to get paid I, exactly the same. I fully agree with you. And look, you know, match fees are match fees and it's not a, an absolute parameter of, of, of payment, well, right, yeah. as we know. But I think it was psychological and I give huge credit to the Irish um, authorities. And Karen Medler negotiated that with the Coleman and, and, the, and the women's team. Psychologically, I think that was huge. I think you're now taught we're treating you all the same as a, as a federation. Mm. And I think that was absolutely brilliant. I think also we need to give credit to the FAI around their structures of that National League at 15s and 17s, which is bringing this conveyor belt of talent through. And it's not unlikely for a girl now to be 14 thinking, I could play for Arsenal here and make a career out of, out of football, which you wouldn't have said maybe 15 outside of the Emma Burns, mm. maybe some of the ones of the Trailblazers that were there. And I think that's really important. So I think you can look at it in the, the context of is this bearing fruit? Because th these things just don't happen by accident. It's because there's been a huge amount of work done by the P-Mounts and Shells and Stella Maris's and Treaties and all these clubs that are pumping equal resources in. And, and the other thing, sorry, just on the women's sport piece is it's now become and rightfully a commercial imperative that you have to have yeah. a vibrant women's section. And you know, you see that with the sponsorship of the ladies' uh, teams. Sky and Cabri and all that 100%, being involved. 100%. Rugby, soccer, GA, whatever it is. So it's all about branding as well, doesn't it? And you know, maybe the men's team, you know, can get to that place because... I, I hope they do. And I think, look, uh, you know, there's an innocence about the women's team and I mean that in a nice possible way. They're, they're, they really embrace... The, the well, it's interesting you say that because in Mark yeah. Gallagher's piece it helps that this is an easy team to like. Yeah. Look at the celebrations on Thursday. Look at how the players took the time to sign autographs and post their pictures. There's lovely innocence to how connected they are to their supporters an ocean away from the glass bubble that the stars of the men's game live in. I know, and it's true. And look, you know, as you know, look, the work we are, we're all in where, you know, the access you get um, to women's players the weeks of matches um, is unrecognisable yeah. to what you get and I don't blame the players for that I blame the the, yeah. the the bubble around the players right but there's almost like and I've definitely found this with ladies football and, and rugby to a, to a point and now with football soccer is 
the, I think the girls take it upon themselves that they know they're ambassadors. Yeah. And I don't think there's any hard conversation around you need to turn up for this interview or you need to post on Instagram or you need to do whatever and sign the autographs. They just do it. Yeah. Because I think they know themselves that 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 they have to do it for the next generation. And mm. I think we've lost that connection a bit with the men. There is. And, and there is that sense that they know that they're kind of ambassadors for women's sport. And they're like you mentioned, Mick, they're at a moment where things are starting to, to mushroom and, and multiply and they're very, very aware of that. And maybe we'll talk about Rory McIlroy later on and how he's taken on the board of ambassador for better or ill with the live stuff and how that's improved his game. I think that's improved where they are as athletes as well, that they're, they're embracing this. That could be a massive weight on your shoulders. And I mean, it could, excuse me, it could have been on Thursday that the magnitude of, yep. of everything got to them, but they found a way to get through it. And I think, by and large, it is actually helping them as as, as sports people. No, there was an anxiousness about how they played the yeah. first thirty minutes, and, and and even Katie McCabe, who's the the superstar of the team, you know, looked nervous to start, and mm. and that expectation was sitting on their shoulders, I think. But like they got through it, um, and I, I I think they're fabulous. I think they're so open, you know, um, and isn't that lovely? And maybe that's why we're so kind of fond of them, you know, that and we really want to see them do well. Um, and I found that with the the Dublin women's team or the me team or you kind of get to know them yeah. a bit better that you kind of feel Very you have true. that little bit of disconnect well, there's an accessibility you, yeah. Know, yeah. If you, if, you know if you wanted to speak to Leona Maguire you probably would be able to get to speak yeah. to Leona Maguire yeah. but if you wanted to speak to somebody in some of the men's sport if you want to speak to Rory like you know hmm. global superstars harder you know yeah, so. yeah. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball Man U Arsenal today, lads. Uh, this was one of the great games in, in world football. Yeah. Now, it's still a, a game with a lot of you know magnitude and uh, iconic nature behind it. But obviously, competitive nature would say that Man City-Liverpool is the game at the moment in the world. But this has got a great history. Wayne Rooney uh, had a really good piece in the Sunday Times about the, kind of the battles in the mid-noughties uh, between uh, Man U and Arsenal. Yeah, when is the last time... Arsenal would have played Man U and definitely been in the better place. As bad as United have been for the last 10 years or whatever. You know, Arsenal have been... Probably 2004, was I was going to say. Yeah. It's like, you know, know. who's the tallest pygmy? Like, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> they both haven't exactly been brilliant it's, for the last, you know. But that, you know, <coughs> it's, a, it's a strange one. But the Rooney article is brilliant. I've actually, coincidentally, I've, I've read um, a couple of books in the last week. The, the Did you read the 1999 yeah, one? Yeah, brilliant. Just the, the anecdotes in it are just little bits and pieces. Don't oh, spoil it now. No, 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 no. Was telling me about well it worth a read. Yeah. It's very well laid out. The format of it is very, very clever. Very sharp, sharp, concise chapters on different players, different parts of the season. And he goes into great detail on that great semi-final and the replay in, uh, in Villa Park. And... I, I, I act, you know, more than any United game of that whole Ferguson era, I remember where I was, who I was with, what I was drinking, um, yeah. my reaction when Ryan Giggs scored the goal. It's so vivid in my mind, and yet I'd totally forgotten something as basic as Ferguson had actually changed his team up. Yeah. He had, he had, Giggs only came on after 61 minutes. You know, he had actually looked ahead and he'd said, for us to do, to even think about doing what we want to do, I need to rest players for this game. And Giggs came on, a refreshed Giggs, and he did what he did. But there was a missed penalty in that game as well, right? Yeah, Dennis Bergkamp, yeah. last minute injury yeah. time. Yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> the treble could have been gone. <laughs> and uh, the other book is the red on red one of the United um, Liverpool rivalry. And they go into the, I think it was the fourth round game at Old Trafford. Between, Paul Scher. Yeah, which was the kind of the dress rehearsal for Barcelona. 
um, which I'd forgotten about as well. So it's been it's been a great couple of weeks of kind of nostalgia on this, and Rooney's absolutely plugs yeah. straight back into it with a brilliant look and back new, at. new information as well yeah, yeah yeah I mean the Gary Neville stuff like is maybe go through it there the Gary Neville stuff I mean how many times have we all seen that video of Keane and Vieira in the Keane and Vieira and I'll see you outside picking someone on your own side or your own size and here we go so Wayne Rooney is talking about how um, Vieira basically went looking for Gary Neville I think Vieira and someone else chased Gary down the tunnel he's not a fighter Gary not off the pitch and he ran into our dressing room, what's up with you, he said. He told us what happened, and when the teams lined up to go out, Roy went straight to Vieira. If you're going to pick on someone, try me, he said. <laughs> like, the image, the, the, the image of Gary Neville running... Of all people. Yeah, yeah, with his tail between his legs, back into the United dressing room, cowering behind the door or whatever, like, what's up with you? Like, but you know. it, it, was, it was the outstanding rivalry of that, of that oh, it was era. just brilliant. Like, you know... Um, and you look back now, looks party thinks, you know, what Rooney says here, from our side, you know, he can more or less says, if we beat Arsenal, we'd, we'd probably yeah. fancy ourselves to win the league. And you wouldn't say that today, obviously. Yeah. Um, but there, you look at the, you know, Pizzagate, the tunnel, there were two different days, yes. right? You had the Rude Vinisteroy um, thing where he was getting patted on the head by Keown or worse. Yeah. Um, and then I didn't realise, and you completely forget sometimes with time, like he took a penalty the following year, early on mm. in the season into the Stratford end and scored it um, and the pressure Rooney talks about the anxiety on it, on his face and I think and John we were chatting about this earlier like I, I, I think it was a really niggly um, rivalry that kind of took the best out of both of them though I don't think it ever okay, it did spill over right but I don't think it got really really nasty um, or bitter Um and actually, I think it was brilliant for the Premier League to have two teams go toe-to-toe like but that. Chelsea-Liverpool had a bit more bitterness, I think, a couple of years later, didn't it? Jose and Rafa and all that kind of Maybe stuff. Maybe bitterness, but in terms of consistent spite, yeah, yeah. this was definitely... Yeah. I mean, how to compare it? Like, it's a different era, you know, Liverpool and City now, but I, I, I think it's the best rivalry yeah, that the, the Premier League has this had. This one, Arsenal-United had more of an edge, and City-Liverpool's very... Oh, we yeah. all play beautiful football. Very play, modern, be a beautiful yeah. football game, yeah. and we'll Klopp and Guardiola love each other afterwards. Yeah. But is I, it... Yeah. No, it, was, it was interesting in, in, in hindsight as well like that at that time right and there's all this nostalgia in the 90s but you know you had that kind of it was that time where it was just changing where you had all these influx of superstars right so you had you know Van Nistelrooy you had Burkamp you had these foreign players on a better way of saying it right and they were brilliant and then but they were backboned by these kind of hardened yeah. kind of pros almost who straddled the ears right yeah, so yeah. you had the Bruces and Pallisters and United at the time you had Keown and you know and you had this kind of you know perfect balance of yeah. it was a real kind of fellas who knew what it meant kind of yeah, thing yeah, and yeah. then you had this the, the, the glamour the, of the silk and steel <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah exactly it, 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 and it's interesting as well because the books um, kind of touching it that I was talking about earlier about you know Fergie what was it he brought as a manager and you know he wasn't a tactical genius by any stretch of the imagination like very little in the way of tactical breakdown of a team people talk about the Matt Busby era go out and play boys enjoy yourselves look for a red shirt or whatever like it wasn't quite that basic but Ferguson was not you know he wasn't Pep Guardiola by any stretch and Wayne Rooney touches on it here again he says the Arsenal game was the one game where Alex Ferguson let the opposition take the initiative. Arsenal would have possession, there was nothing we could do about that. So we'd sit in the mid block, close the space of the art play through and hit them on the break. So it's strange because we didn't work that much in those games tactically. Yeah, so it's like yeah. it's it's literally a different era. You know, you're t- we didn't work that much tactically. And you look at where we've gone now in the sea change in the Premier League, it was very much a different era. And if you look at any of the, 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 the replays on Sky or whatever, and you catch like Rude Van Nistelrooy's greatest goals that you mentioned as well, Mick, 
very, very different times, but brilliant for it. Yeah, and I remember United, and as a United fan, Ferguson used to always pick a certain team for Arsenal, right? And, and Rooney touches on it here. Yeah. He'd, he'd have a panel of, of 20, right? But he, like, I remember Park G's son, Darren Fletcher and Phil Neville used to always play against Arsenal. Yeah. And they mightn't play for the following three weeks afterwards. So again, coming back to your point, he used to set himself up in a certain way with worker bees to kind of grind them down because he probably knew mm. that if they went toe-to-toe, the way Arsenal were Nicky, playing football... Nicky Butt for Paul Scholes is another one. The, the big physical oh, games, like but yeah. Butsy, you'd be in there to... Party you know, Son played every game yeah, against Arsenal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, the Arsenal, Arsenal were nasty. And I mean that as a compliment of sorts. They would leave a foot in, on you. You could handle themselves. They wanted to compete. And another thing about the pizza gate, after full time, yeah. I remember being one of the first into the dressing room, but then hearing shouting in the tunnel outside. The manager walked in. You could see he'd been hit by something. Only you didn't know what. Then you saw the sauce in him. He took his top off and he was clearly worried and shocked. That knocked me. Alex Ferguson was someone I'd grown up watching, had seen then as a player how fierce and demanding he was. Then you see him in shock. You take the football out of it. You understand that he's an older man who's just come under attack. So that was a really well. No, there is. And, and, and he, Fabregas was the one who admitted it later on in life, wasn't it? That he was the one who right, yeah. pizza. Because yeah. they denied it, Arsenal, uh, for a long period well, of time. Like, like, like you say, John, the whole thing was clouded in what happened for so long with Pizzagate. And I think it was Fabregas. Yeah. Good few years later, was the first one to kind of oh that's new, <laughs> and now all these years later, soup as well I think was thrown. Yeah, yeah, but, but it, yeah, pizzas. <laughs> but just on, on the Ferguson thing as well, because because of the rabbit hole I went down this week, there was a brilliant ITV documentary called the Alex Ferguson story, which was made in '92, so the year they lost the league to Leeds, which is um, well worth looking. It's on YouTube the whole thing. So if if you're into that kind of <clears throat> definitely give it a look. You're still scarred by that one. But there's also like there's a bit of an undercurrent, sorry for uh, on this one as well. Um Rooney talks about getting kicked up and down the place a little bit. You know, Saul Campbell that was centre back at the time actually. Um mm. but if you read all the way through it, there's like, you know, um the late uh, Reyes, uh Juan Antonio Reyes, wasn't it? Um mm. that Gary Neville would spend the first five minutes kicking him like and then you always have this kind of undercurrent of the hard man kind of rattling into a Bergkamp or a, yeah. or a yeah. Rooney yeah. or whatever, you know, like that kind of was almost given back then. The first yeah. five minutes was chaos. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Just, like, Carte blanche. Picture, yeah, the yeah. picture of, of, of Neville going into the back of him there. That's a brilliant picture. Yeah. <laughs> we have live commentary today, folks, on Off the Ball. Nathan Murphy, Kenny Cunningham on Man United Arsenal half four kickoff at Old Trafford with the league leaders going to a resurgent Man United. It was interesting, Jonathan Wilson and the Observer, now this is repurposed in the Sunday Independent. After a wild 1.94 billion pound spree, yeah. who can doubt that the Premier League is unstoppable. Amazing, really. Yeah, and look, it's quite an interesting article, actually. Um, you know, we've the, the sign, signing during the week, the transfer deadline stuff. Um, and I think the, the point he was making was around, you know, not even how the Premier League dwarfs every other league. And he comes out with a stat that Notts Forest spent more money <laughs> than the whole championship put together. Um, and is that what you need to do? And we had yeah. the Scott Parker thing during the week where he was yeah. sacked for basically more or less saying I didn't get enough back and that whole thing around financial prudence versus what do you need to spend to stay in the Premier League um, and it does go back to you know in the early 90s when there was a far more kind of you know egalitarian might be the right way of saying mm. it kind of distribution of funds from TV mm. Premier League broke away redistribution of money you know where 50% went to the top and then that's now gone and changed again where what's the I think it's you get 30 or 40 million for coming last or something like um, so you know, they, they, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer and the gap is getting bigger and the money's getting wild. And, you know, we talked about post-COVID and these clubs are going broke and now they're spending billions, literally, yeah. on, on players. <clears throat> and he, he touches on the morality of it, of 
inflation and recession and I think he has a thing around uh, a player an average player um, getting paid more than in a week than a nurse or a doctor or, a, or sorry a nurse or a teacher gets in a year so there is a kind of a a thing around well how much is too much well um, yeah there's, as I said there's some, something particularly jarring about the spending given the general economic picture as energy prices rise threatening millions with fuel poverty and potentially bankrupting tens of thousands of businesses including lower league football clubs with whom floodlights may soon become an impossible expense the idea that 100 million can be spent on Anthony or 5 million on Calvin Ramsey for that matter comes to feel almost distasteful it's, it's interesting to think where, you know the natural question for me is where does this end like we've for years, you go back even to Alan Shearer's British transfer record, Roy Keane's, whatever three point seven five million. Oh, yeah, oh that's madness. You know, Trevor Francis, the first million pound player, and you're like, where does this end? I mean, great. Uh, this is an article loaded with stats and a rare example of it being brilliant for it. The context that Jonathan Wilson places here, you make you mention Nottingham Forest stat. It's actually more than every championship and Brazilian club combined. It's ridiculous. You know, who wants to be born with scorned for spending a Jaeger 27 million euro, which is the same as the entire Greek league? He ends it. Seven clubs have spent more than 100 million net this summer. These are sums beyond the rest of the world, yet some of those sides may not even finish in the top half. And you mentioned as well, Mick, how this has all been coming over a period of time. Mm. And the advent of the Premier League is the natural point for us all to go to. I think the really interesting point here is Jonathan Wilson saying, back to 1983, that's where he's kind of starting it. In English football until 83, 20% of gate receipts went to the away team and then this chipping away at the whatever egalitarianism was there, that's when it started. So that's nine years before the Premier League started. And like, where does it end? Like football is, we talked about bubbles earlier on, it just lives by its own rules when you see what Barcelona are doing. It's just... But you talk about European Super League, the global Super League is the Premier League. Yeah. And the I still think there's potential because really only in the last 15 years did they get their international broadcast rights right. Yeah, and I yeah. still think there's potential around that. Like America, that it's been an exponential growth in recent years. And I still think there's this growth potential. I, I, I so agree if you ask me where it's going to stop, I don't think it's going to stop anytime soon. I, I agree with nation you. states getting involved, with yeah. Saudi Arabia, with the UAE, yeah. with the Ameri- American people uh, getting involved, thinking that there, there is huge... Uh, revenue potential out of this sort you're, you're but right John yeah but even if you look at they, they, he touches on a point here around the um, we've seen this he calls a hollowing out of the Dutch mm. leagues and the Belgian leagues and the second second tier leagues and he's talking about a hollowing out of Syria and La Liga where the better players are just getting soaked up and you end up with a kind of a, a, a class system of Premier League kind of Serie A's Le Ligas and then a whole raft of others um, and where <clears throat> excuse me where's that going to end like <clears throat> there was a school I thought that this was all mostly TV money driven because the money was so big in TV and that broadcast rights bubble and if is, if that kind of comes in a little bit based on all the different platforms that people are using I, I don't know but then you've got the Facebooks and mm. all these other people who want to get their, a hold of, of, of football rights um, and then you've got the ownership issue which you've alluded to John which is you know people aren't in football to even have any sense of break even they're in football for various other reasons and <clears throat> there's bottomless pits of money um, going into into soccer clubs football clubs and where is it going to end? I don't know. Maybe we've reached peak, peak madness. <laughs> I don't. Well, you, I don't, you, I don't you wouldn't I, think after you think after pandemic you would have, but I don't think so. I think. But look, look at the picture that comes with this. It's a picture of Erling Haaland. Okay, so what was the criticism of the Premier League for all its riches for a number of years? The best players were playing in Italy yeah. and Spain, yeah. particularly Spain, yeah. when you had Messi and Ronaldo over there doing their thing. But Haaland 
is one of the top players in the world, unquestionably. Yeah. But some of them are still playing in PSG, in yeah. uh, La Liga, a few of them maybe in, in um, the Bundesliga and, and in Serie A. But if we're looking at this and we're saying we're all in agreement, this hasn't peaked yet. This is just going to keep going through. Eventually, you'll get to a point where all the Hallands will be playing in the Premier League. That is the natural end point. If this continues, as he says, and you said, Mick, I mean, it's the hollowing out of La Liga yeah. at this stage. That's the second biggest league. So that is the natural conclusion. And, and then, you know, the, the clubs are a bit more strategic maybe than what they were because you've this thing where, you know, Man City have these satellite clubs as well. New York. Mm. Yeah. New York, they've won in Australia, I think, um, and a number of others dotted mm. around the place. So actually, are they all just in existence to, to feed the big machine? Um, and are we going to be left with the days of the Anderlex, one a better way of saying it, and the club yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Are they just going to be, you know, decimated to a point of insignificance? Well, yeah, I mean, look, you, how, how many national champions can't get into the Champions League? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I mean, that's, that's again going back to 1983 and the advent of the Premier League. It's just a constant frittering away of whatever sort of sporting values are there for, for, for money. Yeah. That's all it is. Uh, most of the coverage in the papers is match report based because obviously we don't have GA Championship at the moment. We don't have rugby really uh, getting into gear yet. Although it's interesting, Stuart Barnes and um, Stephen Jones have kind of done a one year from the World Cup piece in, in the Sunday Times. But I'm just sick to death, lads, of VAR and uh, reading every single article in the papers has got a VAR element to it. I don't remember football being broken beyond repair before VAR. I remember a couple of controversial incidents over 30, 40 years, Maradona and Henri being the obvious ones that come to mind. But life is grey and to me, this is uh, soiling the game um, because maybe it's more in England. I think in Europe, it seems to be better applied. But every single um, game nearly yesterday had a VAR component to discuss. And we're not really even talking about the matches and match of the day mm. anymore. So I don't know what what the solution is for them in England. But have you fe- felt that VAR has been a good thing to bring into to football? No, I, I, I don't. I don't say it. Like the very nature of football, the 90 minutes of it, it's not rugby where it's constantly broken up. You know, there's a flow to a football game that shouldn't be interfered with. Mm. I mean, that's the whole point of it. We talked with referees in the context of abuse that they get earlier on, I mean, it's, it's a hollowing out of the referee's authority on the pitch, on the field of play. And many times have we seen a referee make a decision, gets a word in his ear a couple of seconds later, go over and watch the screen on the side of the pitch. Fundamentally, I don't agree with it. I agree with you, John. I don't think it was that broken beyond despair, but I think VAR is a, a natural component. It's a natural step for the, for the game to have taken, given the soap opera nature of it. I mean, we talk with every aspect of sport, we, we boil it down to a millimetre of its life and this is where it comes. Everything must have an answer. Nothing can be left kind of on the shelf and, and undecided. You, you think there's an entertainment aspect oh, to this? Absolutely. I, I don't think people who run football are, are against this at all. I think they like this. This gets column inches. It gets people on, on radio well, it, it gets people animated. Absolutely. I disagree. I, 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 I take your point, right? And, and I think, you know, I, I think technology to inform decisions there's so much at stake out of a fairness point of view I, I've no issue with it I think it's application I think is wrong mm. I think they go way too far back sometimes yeah. in incidents that get called from you know a minute or two before um, and I, I, I've no issue with going to a TV because it's just I, I think what's happened now is that the referees don't trust themselves anymore mm. you see that referee in the Chelsea it's... West Ham game yesterday it was never a foul on Mendy no and uh, West Ham equalised and they should get a point and there's a celebration of Cornet and then it's all just 
Yeah. Of washing. And if and if there was no VAR, would the Everton goal have, have, have stood? It was so marginal as well. Um, but just, I, I just think it's, so, it's it's taken a little bit of the joy. Now, maybe in a rugby way, when we have a TMO and there's that initial reaction, we've got to try, and then we have the second reaction. Maybe, I don't know if a fan experience is lessened. I just feel if you're an Everton fan, you see Connor Cody score yesterday, that is pure. He's yeah. a Liverpool lad. It's pure joy. <laughs> and then it's pulled back and then it's not a goal. There's something for me that's a bit oh, about that. I know. And, 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 and look... Uh, I, I'm I'm for sport and fairness in this, and I think if there, if technology can help, great. I think its application is wrong, and I think something that everyone is forgetting about is that there's a human being looking at the screen as well, so he can make a mistake. It, it VAR isn't this kind of you know. Yeah, yeah. Problem. People want perfection yeah. now because yeah. of VAR. Yeah, yeah. But it's not there's a still machine human error in it. Artificial yeah. intelligence. Yeah. So and, you know, it's a person looking at a screen who's still like the Chelsea West Ham one is one that you mentioned. But there's been loads of instances where you kind of go intent. You know, all that kind of stuff is 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 still. But that's. Uh, that's the point, isn't it? I mean, if there, and that's central to it. If there's a human being still making decision with all this technology and they're still getting it wrong, well, just get rid of the technology and just go back to having things wrong. And like you say, John, we've this compulsion to kind of have everything under a control. Life in any aspect is not like that. You can't control everything. And it's the beauty of football, that the variances that happen in a game of football, whether it's a deflection or a thing of brilliance or whatever. And referees, again, going back to our earlier... Uh, conversation they're a fundamental part of it for right or yeah. for wrong that's like I've no uh, something like goal line technology brilliant you have a, a watch on his yeah. wrist bam look lads it's over the line or it's not over the line play on something as simple as that absolutely like in, in GA with um, Hawkeye. Uh, Hawkeye as well absolutely perfect that's cut and dried but like you say if you're, if you're in Stockley Park and you're looking at 12 different angles of a replay and you're like, oh, I have to make a decision on yeah, this. Yeah. I can't go back to the referee and say, Johnny, I don't know. You'd be absolutely out in your ear. Like, you know, it's, it's yeah. creating ridiculous pressure on him. And like you say, John, on the, on the referee. I have to come up with a decision. There's millions of people watching, but I really don't know after watching it. Yeah. You know, it's, ah, yeah. play the game. <laughs> the Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Rory McIlroy, uh, Eamon Sweeney, the back of the Sunday Independent Distraction, becomes an inspiration on his win in the uh, PGA Tour FedEx Cup uh, finale. Obviously, we know the Live Golf Tour is uh, up and running at the moment. Uh, they're allowed to wear shorts, which is wonderful for them. Um, the, the, one, the one paragraph I took out of the McElroy thing, he's intelligent enough to realise the reputational damage the sport he loves will suffer if its stars are seen to privilege the bottom line above everything else. And also, Paul K- uh, McGinley, the former Ryder Cup captain, is interviewed in the Sunday Times, speaking about live golf and all that kind of thing. Um, is it from David Walsh? But this is interesting. The Sunday Times interview with Paul McGinley. Uh, the key to the anger felt by ordinary non-Live members of the DP World Tour uh, is that these guys who've taken the big money from Live think they're entitled to come back and take the places of players who support our tour week in, week out. The Live players don't turn up for two or three million Euro tournaments in the Czech Republic or Switzerland, but they will come in for the six million tournament in Wentworth. Mm. This has led to a lot of resentment. Keith Pelly, who's the boss of the DP World Tour, has spoken to virtually every one of our players, not one wants to live guys in our tournaments messy golf but Rory taking the lead on it that's the key though like Rory will get all the the column inches but that's fundamentally the issue that matters you know why should a guy stay around playing the Czech Open for half the purse or a quarter of the purse like um, 
I don't know. Yeah, I don't but know. There's, I don't know does, it, does it look there's a load in this and, and this is going to run and run and run? I, I, I think there's an inevitable um, ceasefire going to happen here at some point. I think there, there's a lot of posturing on both sides. You're getting to a place where the original kind of Usher, it's kind of Mickey Mouse golfers who are at the end of their tether who, you know, um, are no use anyway and they're just cashing in. Unfortunately, or fortunately, whatever you want to, unfortunately, like a lot of top golfers have, have, have left um, and it's completely weakened the original tour. So is this going to get to a place where there's going to have to be a compromise and maybe a window left for live where players can play ranking points? So part of the year or something? I I, I just think it just, you, you've, you've, you've two imperfect Championships, when a better way of saying it, are two imperfect setups, um, who are both weakened by the fact that they're missing really great golfers on both sides. Um, there's an unstoppable force on one side, and the legacy and tradition on the other side. You know, I don't think there's a winner here. So somebody has to. There will be a. And you, I sometimes you hear a softening language, and you kind of go, mm. okay, well, this is moving towards. I I'd say eighteen months from now we'll have some kind of a system set up where. There would be a release clause for players to play. There'd be a live time. part of the year, say September to December. Which was actually an original plan, I understand, was to have a six-week window where you'd play. And so I, I, I don't think this is going to go away. I think with McElroy, I think it's really interesting. Like sometimes it's kind of scratch my head at the start, going, "Why is he doing this? Like, why is he taking this on his shoulders?" Like, and because he believes in the heritage of the game. Maybe he does, and 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 you'd like to think that that's it's it, it is a live golf so far has been exhibition golf. Mm. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. and 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 I think look with with McElroy, like, I I think he's been really vocal. I kind of get a sense from him, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, John, on this, but he's a guy who had so much success early, so much money, so much everything that goes with that, right? And he kind of looked to me like a fella who kind of lost a bit of drive, right, and had kind of lost his magic, right. And I think what this has done actually for him is he's taken this on, and it's kind of given him a sense of purpose and a bit of fire. And he's playing brilliant, you know, mm. and and it's great to see from him, and it's kind of given it's him a little a, fire within him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and it's it's he he I mean, like, genuinely must believe in this because he's putting his neck out. He, he's done time. every single thing but win the majors this year. But you have to think the majors are coming again for McElroy. It's it, it does seem though that he needs a purpose. Yeah, and yeah, and, and I think if you have so much so young, maybe you know it's hard to put yourself in those shoes. But and, I think maybe he realizes and the, like linking it with Tiger Woods as he has recently to save in inverted commas the PGA Tour Ray Rory has realised that he has that X Factor popularity that other players don't and he's maybe embracing that yeah and he has the, and, and, and yeah. he's got a comfort with that he's a young father now uh, that he might not have had seven, eight, nine years ago yeah, but he but was just another golfer I, I agree and I, there's just one point say Brendan there's one oh. point on, on the, the we talk about the golfers right and, and you know um, this kind of disdain that that some of the players have for the fellas who've defected and the language that's used is quite kind of antagonistic, right? But actually, when they get together, the the personal stuff doesn't seem to have changed, right? So they kind of lump them all into this kind of the ball boys have gone. But then when they meet them like at the Pro-Am and whatever, they're all pally-pally again. Yeah, but I think when the Ryder Cup comes to town in, in, in terms of being held next year, I think it'll get a bit more tense then. Like for example, Sergio Garcia's live for the Ryder Cup. John Ram wants to play with yeah. him at the Ryder Cup. I think it's going to get a bit messy then. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's really interesting that all the stuff that we're talking about is real big picture stuff. But on on McElroy as well, uh, David Walsh's piece in the back of it is literally all about his game. And yeah, and his improvement in his game. You know, it's, yeah. it, and it just struck me reading it. It was like I'm reading about referee abuse. I'm reading about women's yeah. sport and where it's going. And I'm reading about billions in the Premier League. And now oh, oh, Rory McIlroy's putting. Yeah. Oh, right, okay. This is sports pages are taking a different turn. Like yeah. you know, but it's a really good piece. And um, 
you know, I, I agree with everything you've said about it. I think this has lit a fire under him. Yeah. But it's also based on the fact that he's addressed areas of his game. And a lot of this is about his putting. But uh, this is something I thought from just my observations of him last year and this year. Brad Faxon's putting coach says we shouldn't forget that McElroy's progress hasn't just been on the greens. His approach play has improved beyond all That levels. would suggest he's put a lot of work in. Absolutely, on his putting and his approach play. So that goes into what you're talking about, the hunger, the fire. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it properly. Uh, the, Paul Kimmage in the Sunday Independent, Brendan, I have a question. Where have all the journalists gone? This is around the athletics scene at the moment. Has he got a point? Um, yeah, the question here is how much and how often do you preface or include everything about drugs and sport with what you're writing or talking about. Yeah. Like I don't think every interview about athletics yeah. or cycling has to have a question or a theme about doping. Yeah. But in the general point about the coverage of Munich and I was in Munich, maybe, yeah, he does have a point. Um, I know I was in Munich, I was doing 12 to 15 hour days, so I wasn't looking at what everybody else was writing or whatever. But yeah, there probably is a, a case to be made. And it's a case you could expand by something like Qatar at the end of the year. How much do you write about the human side of Qatar, yeah. the morality of it? And at what point do you say... A half an hour into the first game, well, we've all forgotten about that's it. That's the point, like, you know, and in fairness, it's, it is a bit different. We're talking about doping, which is going on throughout championships. It, do you know what I mean? But then the human aspect is there throughout the World Cup So you were well. in Munich, would you have felt that doping was something that might have happened at Munich? Yes, absolutely, yeah. And it's discussions that you would have, but, uh, you know, what can you put in print? Which you um, can't prove. Exactly, like, you know, but Paul's point... So, so my point is, uh, athletic cycling will never be pure. No, but most, most sports will never be pure. Most sports have never been pure. Do you know what I mean? So it's always there. And again, it comes back to the, the, the central point here. How much does that inform on a daily basis when you're covering it? Uh, well, it, it informs everything. But how much space, how much focus does it get? Does every article you read uh, at an Olympics or a World Cup or whatever it might be have a, an asterisk above it or at the bottom of it? You know, what are we watching here? I think there's an element of fairness in what he's saying. Right? Yeah. And I think if you watch highlights of Match of the Day, you don't want to spend the whole hour or whatever it is, an hour and a half, talking about money and talking mm. about... The, of course, that's huge. You want to talk about the game, you want to talk about the... Well, but the last, I watched Match of the Day last night. Most of it was talking about VAR. Mm. Yeah. People don't want to talk about that. And I like to see supporter for a lot of people as well as the uh, importance of, of asking these kind of questions is it is escapism. People want to escape from. No, I, I agree with you, John, and, and, and I, I, I think you're right. I, I do think, though, what his argument, as far as I can read it, is um, you had too many flag wavers in the mm. studio. There was nobody there to ask, you know, kind of probe around some of the issues around athletics in particular. Right. Fair enough. Like maybe in an analysis piece at the end of the tournament or end of the championships or somewhere that could have been. But, you know, I think the people who went in there did a pretty good job of breaking down what was happening, explaining to the to the, to the viewer, this is what's going on. And uh, the escapism of watching sport and people for a change, thankfully, watching athletics again and watching Irish athletes compete, which is which is we've, something we've kind of forgotten about mm. um, over the last five or six years. Um, Sometimes the context doesn't, doesn't lend itself to it. I did a racing road show last week uh, with Gerald Lyons and Johnny Murta and just the vibe of it, it was a fun vibe. It wasn't really lending itself yeah. towards. Let's talk about Jim Bulger now and what he said about uh, mm. the potential issues around doping in Irish racing. Not every single thing no. has to be like Israel Alatunde. You know, uh, I'm looking through Tommy Conlon's article here. I don't see any questions no. around. No, that's a 2,000 word piece minimum. 
and it's not mentioned in the same paper. So that does explain what I think what we're talking about. Yeah. When, where does it come in? And, and you could make the argument in that piece, that's a 100-metre runner. So that's an event that has a huge history of doping. Um, for Israel Olatunde to get in, Tommy mentions in the piece, he needs to go under 10 seconds to get to a World Championships. He's 10.17. So there is a natural question here. How does this happen if you're running clean to, get to, to bridge that gap? Do you know what I mean? So, look, it, it's a very fair point, and I think it's a good thing that we have articles like this maybe making us stop and think, you know, personally speaking, am I doing enough? Should I concentrate more on it? Yes is the, the but answer. But not everyone can be, and no. I think that's important as well yeah. to say. Like, one of the things about the Israel Alatunde Tommy Conlon piece is, uh, on the upside, his daily commute from Dundalk to UCD yeah. and back again is over. It involved a bus from his hometown to Parnell Square, a second bus from O'Connell Street to UCD, the same one in reverse every evening. Unless he got a lift home from his father, who also works in the city. It was 90 minutes each way, sometimes longer. And a couple of days each week, he'd have to make it his way out to Tala AC for training before the long schlep home to Dundalk at night. Now, it's going to improve for him, but how are you supposed to compete <laughs> in this environment? And that more, again, is about the whole structure of the support yeah. for Irish athletics. If you want uh, Rashid Aleke to be a world champion or Olympic gold medal winner at 400 metres now, she's gone to America. Mm. The structures have to be there to support that, and it has to be an industry around that. Absolutely, and and Paul Kimmage in his piece makes a a point about um, people moaning about um, the lack of funding for coaches, which I, kind of offhand way of putting it, we do need funding for coaches. We do need more money in Irish athletics. We do need a better structure for all these people. There's no doubt about it. That does not, for a second, take away from the the anti-doping aspect of it. But these are all issues and. Like, I'd, I'd read that about Israel Olatunde before and his, his schlep up and down from from um, from Louth down to the city centre and out to Tala. It's astonishing he did what he did, um, given given yeah, that regime. The, the, only, the only slight counter is, right, if, um, if all of us have probably been out to the campus, Port Arlen campus, and it's amazing, right? And I think we're at a point now where there are facilities and there is funding that somewhat gets to a place where unlike 30 years ago where the system was getting in the way of athletes where actually there is a system right yeah. the thing around the athlete coaching thing is interesting because what used to happen was they would get their own coaches and they would be still paid do. privately right yeah, yeah and they still do right a lot of them right but the the inference being is that that the, the government through the mechanism of the national governing body will pay for your coach so they're saying that you they'll, they'll give you your 30 40 thousand euro a year as a high as a high performance athlete mm. Plus, my understanding is that your coaching is, is done through the high-performance structure of the NGP. Now, where it gets subjective is, is, is that coach the right coach for the athlete? And some of them still go and get their own coaches privately. And hence the argument around, well, should we be getting money yeah. to support our coaching yeah. needs as well? Yeah. But if you give everyone money for coaching, well, then what's the point of having your elite? Well, athletics is such a diverse sport. Yeah, sure. um, you know, running, jumping, distance, sprint, everything like that. People scholarships in the States, people over in Loughborough, people based at home. Yeah. Like, I don't envy anybody trying to come up with a system where, where it works, but unquestionably something needs to be done to better support it. What else, uh, just to finish up, have we spotted anything else that we like? Um, Ten Hag. Uh, you know, articles about Tottenham's victory yesterday. Ten Hag is a genius, obviously. Uh, well, Ten Hag laying down the law to Ronaldo. It's, it's interesting that Ten Hag like, has to. He has to, for his own sake, lay yeah. down the law and say, Maguire, you can't play. Ronaldo, you can't play unless you're good enough. So uh, those vic that victory against Liverpool was huge for United. 
obviously they got a couple since they play again today but I was even reading the Athletic yesterday they've they've significantly backed Ten Hag mm-hmm. in every single way now they've opened the purse strings and this I think is a way of the Glazers get the heat off themselves but today, every single time the Glazers reach the brink yeah. they, they throw them put the money in I think they're talking about 250 million they've spent. Like the the money even is astronomical well, for Anthony. I, I, I saw the slag of the United fans was they you know they put the art scarves away for a few weeks you know. Um, <laughs> but I think um, I, look the Liverpool game was a bit of a one off. Liverpool do look like a slightly faded force, and that, derbies are derbies, right? Um, Southampton followed by uh, Leicester. I watched the Leicester game and I thought. You know, I should have won by five or six mm. against a very poor Leicester team, and we're hanging on at the end actually because Leicester had a couple of chances. What's your team again, Mick? <laughs> United. <laughs> you, Brendan? Uh, lapsed Man United. Long, lapsed, long, okay. long, long time okay. ago. Long, long time. You no longer go to Mass. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I t- you know, as a United fan, I, I actually refused to go last year. It was so bad. Gary Neville's book is serialised in the uh, Irish Daily Mail or the, whatever the, the Mail. Um, since 2016, the club have paid annual dividends to shareholders worth 154 million. Another 11 million was paid out in dividends in June of 2022, most of which goes to the Glazer family. That's after the club lost 23 million in 2020 and 92 million in 2021 and won no trophies. This might well be allowable under company law, but as Jim O'Neill, lifelong United fan and former partner in Goldman Sachs, says, it seems that basically Man United has been reduced to being a cash machine for the Glazer family. What should never happen is that the owner is creaming off money, even if it's allowed under the rules, when staff are struggling and the club needs needs investment you can't take millions a year out when the ground is rusty and the training ground needs refurbishing and the team is in disarray but the rules allow it this is wild west capitalism it's allowed and this is unfortunately the horse is bolted I've got debts I've got mortgages I've got loans says Gary Neville (laughs) loans aren't necessarily bad my biggest problem is a lack of attention to the club and United's decline under the Glazers ownership I always knew that Sir Alex was a phenomenon genius what I didn't properly appreciate was that his presence covered up for the ineptitude of the Glazers yeah. Welcome to reality. Yeah, well, st- structurally, it does look like United need a, 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 a total revamp um, and reset. Like, the owner of the club, ownership of the club, it's open You were at Tottenham recently. Like, if you go to Old Trafford and compare it to Tottenham, oh. there's no comparison Tottenham, in terms of... Tottenham's amazing. Um, but you look at United and it, it, it does look like it needs a top-down reset. That It doesn't matter who the owners are. Um, if you don't have the right directors of football, the right CEO, culturally, the club's in, a go- in, in the wrong place. Like, so, you look at City for right or for wrong or Liverpool you, they look like clubs that are well run mm. and I do agree with the Fergie thing I think he probably to force a personality and that team winning way beyond probably its sell by date probably covered up issues that were coming down, coming down the pipe I think overall in the papers myself and Brennan were, were chatting about this earlier the lack of GA and I know there is GA but the lack of is kind of we really should be talking about an all final today or even last week's all final right well, we're not talking about the club scene wasn't the whole point uh, we're going to create this uh, six months uh, of, of for club players and there's a bit of uh, David Clifford at the Celtic match yesterday yeah, and yeah. a bit of this and I, a bit of that. Well, you're, you were never going to have the club game in the papers or on... Like, it's just but Larry McCarthy game. said it was the most important thing of the year at and, the All-Ireland Final. Yeah, but that doesn't mean it has to be in the national media. I yeah. mean, that's, that's the reality of it. I know uh, that's, that's the disconnect that there is between the big show, the thing that... Uh, enchants the whole nation which is the All-Ireland Championship the inter-county season which is what drives more revenue for the GA which you can put back into units association which starts with the club and benefit the whole association I think this is madness the, I think GA, the GA came from the right 
place in mm. trying to make the change it was making, which was to make sure that there was better balance. What it did is it redressed the balance too far. I, I agree. I, I think it needs tweaking, but I like the idea of it. I mean, like everything you say is right, but the way it was, the club player was just getting shafted year in, year out. And we talked about referees in decline. There was lots of anecdotal evidence about club players just disappearing, not hanging around. But if it happened, sports. surely uh, most inter-county players have been in the States. Well, they have. And, and you know... They, but you, then, you, 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 the sorry, Nick, you, you bring, it, bring it forward another couple of weeks. So maybe the All-Irelands don't finish until, what, the back end of another three weeks or whatever. Does that help in cutting out this flow of traffic to the US and they just go straight into the club scene? I don't know. If the, if the principal and, and, and on the other hand, like there's players like TJ Reid probably never get a break all year. Yeah, and look, and, and, and GA, an inter-county player will tell you it's great, right? That's another thing yeah. because they all got a holiday this year and mm. they did in the past and not this open-ended season and the madness of playing the first round of the Connacht Championship and then playing the second round nine weeks later, yeah. like bananas, right? Stuff. And then the GA managers too much control and they won't release the players to the clubs. The principal of what they're doing is right what they've done is they've gone too far and I think they need to bring the all Ireland finals back to middle of August, end of August for the hurling and football. It's all about the summer. Like we were down west um, uh, in Lahinch and after the football final the kids are out trying to be David Clifford and Shane Walsh. Three days later they're back playing soccer. <laughs> but you've got, you got to give them that window of, mm. of time and losing out that bit of the back to school thing and the cups going around the schools. and There is something in that. Yeah. Also the intrigue of a two to three week lead up to a Laura and final or even a two search week. for tickets. And like, mm. and, like, and like that thing of... Um, you know, if the idea is, one of the ideas is to finish the All-Ireland Club final, say, the first week in December, so you have a calendar year, mm. and let the club final be the, the curtain coming down on the season, which it should give it give its place, you can still do that by finishing the All-Ireland finals at the end of August. People forget, you want to talk about two teams in the final, so there's mm. all the other teams going yeah. playing their championships, yeah. Yeah. if they want to be playing. And make the club uh, finals a huge thing, make it a big thing, market 100%. it massively, like have a, have a, have a national holiday around it, whatever. Um, but I just think there's been a gap here. I like today mainly on the program between one and seven on News Talk. It's two Premier League games. It's yeah. Leona Maguire. It's a bit of Dan- Danish golf. It got golf in Denmark. It's the Grand Prix in Holland. That's mm. it. Yeah, and we should be talking about at this time of the year. I think we should be also talking about GEA. Mm. Brendan O'Brien from the Irish Examiner and Michael Keith from Tenio CEO. Thanks so much, lads. Brilliant stuff. Appreciate your time. Thanks, John. Papers, Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll speak soon. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball.